the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Waltzing Vienna and a jolly swagman camped by a billabong under the shade of a kulaba tree. Falcatas and Hayatas. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a two-part interview with Larry Correa on his new debut epic fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. This is book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf also joined us for the interview. It's a rousing conclusion to the interview this time, so hold on to your hats for that. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now the news. Ho, 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 mass markets are in the air, wearing colorful holiday covers and slaying to booksellers everywhere. Out now is 1636, The Viennese Waltz by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. We talked with the authors about this one on a previous podcast, of course. With Paula and Gorg along with Eric, it's always an amusing adventure in the Ring of Fire series. In this one, the recently formed Austro-Hungarian Empire is teetering on the brink of economic collapse. So the United States of Europe sends auto mechanics and financiers to the rescue. The mechanics are West Virginian hillbillies, and the financiers are mostly teenage American girls risen to wealth by taking advantage of the new opportunities created by the Ring of Fire. Dinosaurs and Dirigibles by David Drake is also out in mass market. Here are time travel tales by David Drake. We talked with Dave about these on a previous podcast, too. There are some cool dinosaur hunting scenes and a bit of steampunk mysticism to finish it all off. It's good stuff. 1636, The Viennese Waltz and Dinosaurs and a Dirigible are available at booksellers everywhere, and all of our ebooks are specially delivered by E. Reindeer this month. Ho, ho, ho. This is part two of a two part interview with Larry Correa and Tony Weiskopf talking about Larry's debut epic fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Part one of the interview was on the previous week's podcast. I want to welcome Larry Correa to the podcast. Hey, Larry. Hey, how you doing? Larry Correa is the creator of the New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter International series, including Monster Hunter International, Monster Hunter Vendetta, Monster Hunter Alpha, Monster Hunter Nemesis, and Monster Hunter Legion, as well as the creator of the Magic Noir-themed Grim Noir Chronicles, set in the 1930s where magic works, which include Hard Magic, which we've serialized in audiobook form here on the podcast. He's the co-author with Mike Coopery, of soon-to-be three books in the Dead Six series, including Dead Six and Swords of Exodus and whatever Project Blue becomes. Larry has been an accountant, part owner of a gun store, shooting instructor, and a competitive shooter himself. He grew up in the California outback on a farm and now lives in Utah. Larry's latest book is the first novel in a new epic fantasy series, 
The series is called The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, and the book is Son of the Black Sword. It's now out at booksellers everywhere. Also here today is uh, Tony Weisskopf, Bain Books Publisher. Hello. Hi, Tony. Hello, everybody. There's, um, I we don't want to get into too much of a spoiler, but my favorite character in the book was Jagdish. Uh, oh, he's awesome. He's, he's got an odd family situation with, with what he's, can you tell us a little bit about his character and, and how he interacts sure. with Russia? He's one of my favorites. Um, and actually, he's a character that, speaking of role-playing games, uh, uh, he came, Jagdish came out of a, a role-playing game. He was a, uh, he was an NPC that I played. <laughs> GM. And I was like, <laughs> I got done playing him. I was like, holy crap, this dude's going in the book. He's too <laughs> so, uh, what happened with, with Jagdish is he's a character from the Warrior cast. And so he's kind of our, our glimpse into that society, group of society. And these guys exist to fight. That's their purpose. And that's like where they fight. And they are the most honor driven and um, prestige driven. So, it's all about your name. It's all about who you are and your personal legend. Um, and, like, the betterment of your family is based upon your courage and your promotions. And uh, so John Deesh is an overachieving warrior, and he's kind of this cocky guy. But at the same time, he's a really good officer, and he loves his men. And he, he always goes above and beyond for his friends. He's a very loyal dude. Um, so when we first meet John Deesh, um, he winds up on the wrong side of a fight against Ashok. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Which is not, not a place you want to be, because Ashok is a, he's a walking killing, he's a magically augmented killing machine, right? So poor Jagdish has to fight this dude, and, uh, you know, I won't say, I won't give too much away, but then later on as the series progresses, it brings these two guys back together. But they're both so respect driven, and, um, Jagdish, it's all about his name, it's all about, uh, you know, bringing honor to his family, bringing prestige, and he's, he's, and he's cocky, so he wants to take on Ashok again. Um, but at the same time, during this period, uh, he, he, you know, they have arranged marriages. And so he's married off to a woman, uh, from the worker caste, which is actually kind of an insult. Um, but he, he falls in love with her and he truly loves his wife. And, um, it's just great bits. Like, uh, she's, she's, she's a, she's a beautiful young woman, but she snores horribly. She's like, snores like an elephant. <laughs> so, but he just, there's this great little bit just to show how much he loves, she loves, he loves his wife, where she, he can't sleep, and she's there just making this horrible snoring noise, and she, she realizes that he's awake, and she rolls over, and she's like, oh no, my snoring's like, no, you, uh, you sleep like a beautiful songbird perched high in the boughs of a tree. <laughs> Elegantly. And it's like later on, you know, she's scratching him with her toenails, and <laughs> he's just like, but, but he's, he's, uh, Jagdish is a great character, and uh, so what happens is, um, uh, shoot, there's so many spoilers. That's the hard part about talking about. Yeah, him yeah, you can't say, you can't say much more about him. <laughs> yeah, it, so he winds up in a situation where he's thrown back together with a guy that basically ruined his life. Um, at another point, he winds up. Well, a major character as the series goes on is the is Gutch, the uh, the worker. Mm -hmm. And it can detect magic. Yeah, he's great. Who winds up thrown in with Jagdish? He's a great guy. And, he's uh, like he's he's big um, and he's not as dumb as he looks. Oh yeah, yeah. You think he's you definitely you think he's a big dummy, um, but he's not. That guy is sharp, and he's he's actually a lot of fun. I got a lot of cool stuff planned for him. 
And so he gets thrown in with Jagdish, and they, um, as the series goes on, they kind of have a quest. <laughs> Jagdish has his mission in life. He's going to redeem his name. And he's going to bring honor and glory to his family, even though he knows he's probably going to get killed in the process or or wind up in prison for the rest of his life or executed. But by golly, he's going to do it. <laughs> and uh, he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He gets a great drunk fight scene, too. <laughs> <laughs> another uh, another uh, staple from uh, Asian films. Oh, yeah, it's true, because he was not expecting... He, he, he was not expecting to have to get into a battle for his life after a night of all these soldiers buying him beer so he'll tell them stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, was, that was a fun scene. But yeah, he's, he's a cool character. He's actually one of my favorites. I really like writing him. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a good dude. He's, a, he's actually one of, the, one of like the, the more honestly good-hearted people in the series. You get mad at, I mean, you kind of feel mad with, along with his wife when he decides that he's got to do this honorable stuff because it's like, take care of your family, dude. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed writing that because it's like, what he thinks is the right thing to do is probably not the right thing to do, if that makes sense. So, in order to, what he thinks better the life of his family, he's going to actually endanger everything. But, you know, that's that's the thing about writing characters is they're going to do, uh, they got to do what makes sense to them and their worldview. And uh, one cool thing about when I make up the world, the worldview is whatever I think it is. <laughs> uh, he's, he's great. I, yeah, I, I, I wish I could say more about his plot line, but when, we, when the second book comes out, everyone will have read the first one, and I'll be fine. Uh, we we can refer people too who haven't read the book yet to the uh, to the short story. Oh yeah, Keeper of Names. Yes. Um, that's uh, that is in the that is in the Shattered Shields anthology. Yes. Uh, from Bane. Yeah. That and Keta. That's a, that's the origin of Keta, and that's in the book, and that's. He's a really cool character too. Let's talk about the um, the forgotten and and the, the cause there's a religious rebellion going on, um, which is a, a main part of the plot of the book um, of the whole big overstory. Um, can you tell us about the keeper of names and his bodyguard Thera? Oh, okay, really cool characters. So we meet Keta as the book goes on. We really get to know him and. Uh, he, he's ca he started out castless, and he considers himself a free man, which is completely anathema to this uh, society where everybody has a place and everybody belongs to something. But Keta considers himself a, a free individual, and the reason being is that he is he's part of the old religion. He has he's a convert to the old, forbidden, forgotten, abandoned religion, and um, he is kind of a self-appointed, <laughs> not quite, but he's become a leader of this group. Um, and most of the society would consider him and his religious fanatics who should be exterminated. <clears throat> but Keta, he means well, and he's, because he's castless, he, he's, he believes in truth, and, and he's trying to get justice for his people. He's trying to have a good outcome for, for the castless, who are just treated like crap. I mean, they're, they're horribly oppressed horribly oppressed people. So Keta um, is kind of a champion of them, and he, uh, the problem is, 
He doesn't actually know the old religion because he didn't really have much of a chance to learn it before he got put into this position. So he's kind of making it up as he goes along. <laughs> and he's really shockingly in over his head because he's kind of leading a rebellion <laughs> against this ultra-powerful society with a group of just people who are completely unprepared, malcontents, misfits, malnourished, don't know how to fight, no logistics. But by golly, he's he's going to do it. And uh, Sarah is his, as far as you know, when we first meet her, she's his bodyguard. Um, but there's so much more to Sarah that I can't give away. She's actually a daughter of the, worker, of the warrior caste who um, was thrown out of her house. And uh, I cannot give away much more about her, unfortunately, because she's, she's an awesome character. As the series goes on, we get to see a lot of stuff with Sarah. She's, uh, her, she's, she's really cool in her like being bitter about everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, she has got In each situation, she'll find a way to be bitter about it. Yeah, and I alluded to some of the stuff, because, you know, she's obviously got some baggage. She's got some specific baggage against the protectors. Um, and, I mean, if, if for a reader who pays attention and, and carefully pays attention as the book goes on, I don't I don't come out and say it in this first book, but you can kind of understand where that comes from. By the time you get to the end of the book, you'll, you'll know why she's bitter. Um, but she's got access to some abilities that are abnormal in this world. And that's all I can really say. <laughs> what uh, you have some? Uh, what else do we can we talk about the world? Like your badass assassins there. Oh, those guys. Okay, so the second book is actually called House of Assassins because a uh, big big part of it takes place. Um, well, for those of you who finished Son of the Black Sword, you know how it is. Okay, that's all I'll say. And so it picks up uh, with the House of Assassins. One of the main characters is kind of stuck with this group of people. And what it is, is they're referred to in the book as the Lost House. So keep in mind, the government's, you know, the capital, but then you've got every, the rest of the continent divided up on these houses. What I've shown as the book has gone on is that houses rise and fall, and sometimes they're absorbed by other houses, or sometimes they merge, sometimes they split. It's just politics. But um, the Lost House was stamped out of existence for sins against the law. Um and so they, this, this house was exterminated, basically. Because, and I never really got into what they did to cause their extermination. But contrary to what most of the people believe, they still, some of them are still alive. And they have a secret um, agenda. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make their, they're all wizards. They're all, that's one of the things they're in trouble for is they, they all practice magic illegally. And so they make their living now as a house of assassins. So it's this, basically this covert group outside of the law that uh, is called upon by different factions in secret and paid large sums of, uh, not money, but they're actually paid always in black steel or demon parts. So they're amassing a magical, you know, storehouse, basically. And the House of Assassin goes around the continent just basically uh, doing uh, nefarious deeds for pay. But they have a secret agenda that no one else in the continent knows about, that the reason they do that, the reason they are the assassins is so that they can slowly build their way towards their goal, which I have not got into yet. So, one character from that that I get a point of view character is Sakaso, and that guy, he's awesome. He is a <laughs> conniving, murderous bastard. <laughs> he's great. But he's cocky, too, and he thinks, this whole book, he's, 
he's looking forward to fighting Ashok. He yeah. he really thinks he can take Ashok. He thinks he can beat Ashok, and he thinks he can take the sword. He thinks he's that much of a badass. But then at the end, these two get to actually square off, and you see what happens. Um, he's yeah, Ashok is a force of nature, and yeah. uh, so. But yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna go into the House of Assassins into the next book quite a bit. But they're they're pretty cool. And right now, the it's funny because the Inquisition thinks they're using the assassins, and the assassins think they're using the Inquisition. Hmm. So, I love writing political factions. I love writing <laughs> political groups using each other and uh, being conniving. So, I uh, actually, you know, who would think that I like politics? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> what? Um, the battle scenes in the book are fantastic. Speaking, I mean, and you know how to you know how to write a great fight scene. Um, I heard from Tony that you, she had you revise a couple of things at the beginning. Um, oh yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a, okay, here my, I am really good at writing fight scenes, modern fight scenes, because my background, uh, was in firearms instruction and shooting, and I had to take a lot of classes from a lot of experienced people and associate with a lot of really experienced people, and so I've always been able to kind of capture that, um, that vibe. Uh, you know, hand-to-hand sword combat and axe and bow and arrow, that's, that's a different thing. So, I mean, one good thing for me is I have good proofreaders, good alpha readers, and I've got Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tony, Tony, will, Tony is very good at making sure her authors don't screw up that kind of thing, and she knows that. She knows that world pretty well. So uh, I had to do a lot of research, and uh, Tony sent me a copy of uh, Hank Reinhardt's Book of the Sword and Book of the Knife. And just this super invaluable research. Uh, in fact, every time I teach a creative writing thing or a panel or whatever for aspiring writers, I tell them, if you're going to write anything that's like medieval combat or sword combat, get these books. Um, just get these books and read them. Uh, and if you're ever going to write a real scary knife fight scene, because, I mean, the book of the knife teaches you how to fight with a knife. Yes, it's... Yeah, and I use a lot of that in that in that in that party sequence um, that I was talking about earlier. It, it well, one good thing is I I have taken a lot of wound ballistics classes, and so that does get into edge weapons quite a bit. I mean, so I'm I'm pretty familiar with what happens when people get stabbed, shot, cut, um, so on and so forth. So I mean, that doesn't change uh, too much. Just I guess the severity of it, but um, the actual but the tactics, the um, the how you do it, and then once again because I'm doing this kind of almost a pseudo-Asian martial arts flavor is I've got to take it up a notch. And so you got the element of, of super realism versus, you know, magically augmented super people beating the crap out of each other, you know what I mean? So um, there's kind of the balance between perfect realism and entertainment, I guess, when you're writing it. But uh, I really like writing fights. I, I, like fight, fight, I like writing action scenes. That's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Some, of the, so, some of the humor in your work comes across... The most in the action scenes, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, that's one of the things I've learned, though, is you, you can get this if you talk to anybody who has a really dark or serious, dangerous type job. They're funny as hell. Um, this is a rule of thumb. And I spent my career hanging out with a bunch of people that were, you know, honest to goodness, badasses who've been there, done that, you know, mercenaries and vets and, and, and just people who've done all these crazy things. They are super funny. 
they're funny people because they have to be. I mean, some people are morose. Some people are very serious. Everybody, everybody's an individual. But overall, if you've got a dangerous job, you tend to you tend to make light of stuff. You tend to you know make jokes. You kind of have to. And so, uh, one of the things I've done is like I write these. Um, fight sequences and stuff, but I know that these people tend to not be perfectly serious all the time. I mean, some people are, but a lot of, like, so when I write the Monster Hunter series, there's a lot of smart asses in there, you know? When we write Dead Six, I mean, Dead Six, Lorenzo is a snarky ass. <laughs> he's a, he's a horrible person. And, uh, so I like putting in too. elements of humor, uh, in, in, right in between moments of awfulness. You know, I think that's something that uh, you and Lois share, actually, Lois Bujold, because uh, she has that as well. Um, she's amazing. Yeah. She's so good. Yeah. Yeah. But her, her warriors also have that uh, you know, ability to laugh at, at, at life and at death because you have to to deal with it, you know. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk to people that do this stuff for a living and they tend to be really funny. Mm. Um, well, we talked, you know, I did an interview with Mike Cooper last week, and um, he's got a really droll sense of humor. It's really... It, oh, he does. It takes a moment. Oh, to, you don't even know if Mike is joking? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, we should, we should, I, and he's, my, he's, my, he's one of my best friends. I've known him for years. Mm -hmm. we, we, Sometimes we should, he'll stay trapped, and I'll just look at him like, I don't know if you're serious right now or not. But you, you know him well enough to be able to sign his books, is that right? <laughs> Yeah, I signed a lot. It's funny because um, I wish I would have thought of this in the first half of book tour. <laughs> but <laughs> the second half, somebody brings me a Mike Cooper novel because, you know, um, Her Brother's Keeper just came out. And everybody knows I'm good friends with Mike. We've written books together. And he's like, hey, would you sign this for Mike Cooper? And I'm like, sure. So I put the, because he's left-handed, so I put the pin in my left hand, but I held it like a dagger. <laughs> it just did it all horrible. Mike Cooper, and I think I spelled it wrong the first time on purpose. Um... <laughs> But then it became a then we posted on Facebook, became a running big gag. So every, everywhere else we stopped, all the Mike Cooper novels sold out so people could have me sign them. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, so I told Tony on Facebook, I said, this is brilliant. You can send one writer on tour and sign twice as many books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will warn you that uh, I, I gave away a copy of Son of the Black Sword and, and somebody uh, after I did a speech and somebody came up and asked me to sign it. And I, I usually don't I, I usually don't autograph you know books that I've, I've edited, but in this case, <laughs> I, I, I did feel free. So uh, there there is a copy of Son of the Black Sword out there signed by me as you writing like Mike Cooper. <laughs> Pretty meta. <laughs> See, anybody can sign mine though because my signature is so crappy. Because the Air Force ruined my signature, uh. I had to sign my name a hundred times a day. So I just have a squiggle. That's my signature. Is basically a squiggle. That's why I drag. The, I always draw the Monster Hunter happy face, so they'll know it's me. Oh yeah, no, I I, I drew the happy face. <laughs> oh, we're set. Yeah. Yeah, so Mike showed up to the book signing in Arizona, like uh, my second to last book signing on tour. Because uh, he drove down from Colorado, he brought a pack of crayons. <laughs> <laughs> but I am fine with other authors signing my books because that means somebody had to buy the book for them to sign it. So this is brilliant. <laughs> I would really like to get um, a uh, Korea Coopery podcast together one of these days soon. 
Oh yeah, we just wrapped up. We just wrapped up the third. Well, it's not totally. The, the rough draft is done. Now we're just kicking it back and forth, editing it. Uh, so the the final Dead Six novel is done. So I, I think Tony set the dates. Like I think it's like late summer. Um, twenty sixteen. Fall. I think. Fall. Yeah, I think it's I'm not the sure. fall schedule. Yeah. yeah. It's coming. <laughs> uh, so you got a title yet? <laughs> um, because I asked Mike this last on this. week. I too. suck at titles. Yeah. Let, 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 like, for, we'll let it. I don't know if I'm your worst author at titles, but I'm probably up there. No, you're not. But uh, but we will for our listeners. There will be a title before we we release the book. I guarantee that. Or we'll just call it. Me and Mike have been calling it Project Blue for years, but that was just kind of our working title. We we, um, we just put, but, we're, we're going to have published a book called Project Elf Home a few months before yours, so uh, that one's by Wen Spencer. So uh, Project Blue is out. <laughs> well, plus Blue doesn't it doesn't really tell you what the book it doesn't tell you anything about the book, right? You no, know? so it's not a good. I mean, I agree, it's not a good. That's just our working title, but we'll we'll think of something. Yeah. <laughs> those those books are wonderful because you. I mean, it, you throw in every conspiracy. You make every conspiracy theory there ever was be real, basically. Um, yeah, that's kind of a running joke because uh, for many years, Mike worked uh, nights as a security guard, and he always listened to Coast to Coast AM. And uh, so when we were writing this, one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to bring in every every right-wing conspiracy theory and every left-wing conspiracy theory. When I say that, and we kind of divided the world into two competing spheres, where all the right-wing conspiracy theories were all congealed into one big group, and all the left-wing conspiracy theories were in one big group. So we call, and we call them. So one side in this war is majestic, and the other side in this war is the Illuminati. But we play this straight um, yeah. throughout the series, and it's it's just fun. So it's basically your cabal of powerful European, uh, old-school aristocratic. Well, super wealthy bankers, and on the other side, you've got your, you know, kind of pseudo CIA black ops, um, Cold War conspiracy stuff. And so, these two secret organizations are are, are having a, basically a shadow war against each other, and our characters are just kind of stuck in the middle. And they've both been um, they've both been unwitting agents of these two forces. Hello, there's our title: Shadow War. Sounds pretty good. Tony, you're the boss. <laughs> <laughs> the, so you're finishing that up. Um, so what are you going to work on next? What's on the on the slate? Uh, actually, the next thing I'm working on is editing Monster Hunter Grunge. Um, uh, what, I, that tell is, us how that but, came uh, about, please. <laughs> I want to know. Actually, what I'm doing is right now is I have to read, I have to reread all five Monster Hunter novels um, <laughs> slowly and take notes because. Basically, I gotta edit, I gotta go through and do an editing class at Grunge, uh, for all the continuity stuff. I've already done that once, I just needed to go through with very detail, make sure everything's right. I, uh. Then I got the next solo Monster Hunter novel, which is back to Owen, which I'm gonna write. But then we got the Monster Hunter Guardian with me and Sarah, and I owe her, I owe her an outline, uh, big detail outline to start. So, basically I've got three Monster Hunter books just boom, 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 in a row. So I'm, I'm basically re carefully rereading all uh, all the Monster Hunter stuff together right now to make sure I've got everything, all my ducks in a row, and 
because you know your memory pull, you know, plays tricks on you as a writer. Yeah. Oh yeah, I totally revealed that already. Oh yes. wait, no, I didn't. So, <laughs> and, and and that Tony is how they came about. Uh, uh, John Ringo was was going back and reading the the Monster Hunter books, and uh, he sort of fell into them, and he couldn't get out until he wrote some. So uh, uh, that did it start out as a story for the anthology that's going to be the Monster Hunter anthology. Oh, he'd be... already started it before I before I approached him about the anthology. Yeah, it was when I approached about the anthology that I learned because uh, Tony, because he just told Tony, and so I asked Tony, he's like, "Hey, you think I could get John Ringo to kick his story into the anthology?" And she's like, "Yeah, about that." <laughs> a story, yeah, that might be hard to get out of him. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's like, "Why don't you go call John?" <laughs> <laughs> now I, I will tell you, I've just but said it's a, it's a good it's a good book. I'm really excited. It's 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 a fun story. Yeah, and it's different. It's like a, I'm looking at it as kind of a spinoff. It's like a spinoff series, you know, because it's a different character. It it takes place, uh, you know, basically 20 years before the regular series starts, and so it's just kind of a, it's the same world, but it's a different group. And it, uh, a lot of the same characters are in there, but they're younger versions of the characters that we know. And John John did a really good job. So. Um, I was blown away by it, and then I problem was, you know, this is my this is my secret universe where I have you know pages and pages of information that I've never revealed, and like the secret history of monster hunting. So when I went through and edited it for the first pass, I, I sent him back two hundred comments of uh, like the secret history of monster hunting. So Frank <laughs> goes like. Wow, that's a lot of editing. Um, hey, you want to make this a collaboration? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I, I did send you one of my favorite editing tools. It's going to be in the package that you get uh, tomorrow. Oh, cool. Yeah, what? In? <laughs> you got a reveal. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, no, it's the kukri. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's great, yeah. An editing kukri? An, a special editing kukri. Yeah, this is the uh, the kukri that Hank Reinhardt designed for, uh, 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 well, for Blackjack a long time ago, but that K-Bar uh, is doing now. And uh, Oh, cool! Yeah. yeah. This, is a, this is a weighted, giant, sort of machete-like knife that it's, is a beautiful piece of... Uh, it is, it's the knife of the Gurkha. That's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, because it was the other day you had posted up a picture of one that you'd gotten. Where could, I posted where could we get one? Of, of, of mine. And so we all, all the, all the Bay and authors started putting up our kukri pictures. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you can get you can get the uh, the Reinhardt Becker kukri from, uh, directly from K-Bar, but also from any of your, uh, uh, your favorite knife um, retail sales outlets, including, I have to say, Amazon. So... <laughs> Sweet. Yes. Cool. I got an editing kukri. <laughs> see if see how many. Uh, I'd like to see if it could split a manuscript in half. It uh, might. We we've already tested it on paperbacks, and uh, mm. yes, it can. Well, I, I have a twenty-one inch. I have a twenty-one inch Chilongi, which is one of the bigger ones. Yeah. And uh, I used to cut down a small tree once at scout camp. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just going to say, th these things come sharp out of the box. Make sure your leading leg is nowhere in the path of the of the kukri. I'm just going to say oh, that right now. <laughs> yeah, you could mess yourself up with one of these things. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. for those people who are listening who are not familiar with the kukri, 
all the weight is at the end, so when you swing it, it it just it hacks. It's like it's like it's like a it hits like a hatchet. Um, it's hard to explain if you've not swung one, but I'm not joking about cutting down a small tree. <laughs> it didn't oh, take yeah. very many shots. These things are these things are ridiculous. They are they are a they are a limb lopper offer. They, yeah, they are, and um, and it's one reason why the Kukri has appeared in so many Bane books. Um, a lot of different publishing houses, they will have style sheets, you know, the way that uh, punctuation is supposed to go, um, what kind of spelling you use if you use gray with an E or gray with an, an A, that kind of thing. I am proud to be, I believe, the only publishing house in the world that has a style for Kukri, so... <laughs> Enough of enough, enough Bane authors use the Kukri in their novels uh, uh, often enough that we have to that we had to put that in there. Yeah, because I gave I gave Owen and Ganga Ram in the in the first Monster Hunter. Absolutely, and uh, you, you're probably the only publisher alive that immediately knew exactly what I was talking about. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! For sure! For sure! David Drake has them. Uh, Ringo has used them. Uh, Tom Crapman has has got them in his books. So, yeah, yeah. Well, did you notice in Thunder Blackstar the Southern Swords were all uh, heavy weighted towards the end, cur uh, forward curving choppers? I did. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, all the Southern ones were basically either like Kukris or Falcatas. Um, not that I could use those words. Uh, right. But yeah, they were. All the southern, also the northerns are straight, and the southerns are all forward choppers. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, I had to do it. Basically, <laughs> you can't write, you can't write a Bane book without something getting chopped. <laughs> that's that's not true. You you just have to kill Joe Buckley. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta figure out. How, well, I gotta figure out what the Hindi translation of Joe Buckley's name is, <laughs> and I will totally kill him. Joe Buckley is a continuing. Uh, for those that don't know, he's he gets killed in a lot of Bane books. Uh, we'll have, we'll have well, I, I killed him three times in Monster Hunter Alpha. And so. Bane authors can uh, compete to kill him the most horrible way. We'll have to do a podcast with Joe. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that makes me think you are um, at least conceiving of the sequel. Have you written it, or are you going to work on it soon? The two seventh uh, black sword. Going to work on it soon, but I got to get the Monster Hunter. Uh, I got to get the mon the next Monster Hunter one out of the way first. Um. Because that, that, that's, you know, that's still by far my most popular series. And I love writing it, too. And uh, I figure since I'm going to be working on Ringo's and the collaboration with Sarah, I might have, I mean, it's, I'll be tuned up. I'll be in the Monster Hunter zone. So I'm going to get the Monster Hunter, uh, next Monster Hunter sequel out of the way before I tackle House that, of the Assassins. That's going to be an Owen book. House huh? of the Assassins is the outline. That's going to be an Owen book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Solo Owen book. Once again, don't know the name. <laughs> uh, actually, I've, 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 I've been building up towards this one for a long time. There's a bunch of stuff that I've alluded to in Legion and Nemesis that happens in this one. Um, Aren't the Owen when, books uh, first person? Yeah, it's, it's, this is another Owen first person one. Yeah. And then, then the one I'm collaborating on with Sarah is Monster Hunter Guardian, and that's uh, Julie Shackelford. Uh, that one's Julie Shackelford's point of view. So... And Sarah, honestly, if you've read Sarah's stuff, I know you guys have, but for the listeners, if you've read Sarah's stuff, you know that she is like the perfect person to voice uh, Julie Shackelford. She's she's perfect. She's a perfect fit for it. Uh, so I'm I am 
we, me and Sarah came up with this idea about four years ago, I think. We were at LibertyCon, and uh, we talked about it. And so I, I think that Sarah is just an ideal fit. So I'm really looking forward to that one. And to, get, to give you an idea of what the plot is like, uh, I, I told Sarah for research she needed to go watch the movie Taken. <laughs> you know, Liam Neeson. I was like, watch Taken. That will give you an idea of, like, the tempo of this book um, and kind of the flavor. So not to give too much away about a book that's not going to be out for a while, but that's 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 what that one's like. It, it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Owen is not actually there. Owen's not – Julie's on her own because Owen is in – the Owen solo novel and the and Monster Hunter Guardian take place at the same time. They overlap in the timeline. Yeah. Um, so Owen is not present. He's not he's not around when his kid is born. He's off I can't tell you what, doing something far away. And he's 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 out of pocket when, when his child is born. Mm. Um but that means that Julie has to stay home during this obviously and which really pisses her off. <laughs> one one more thing I'd like to bring up about the Son of the Black Sword is um or Son of the Black Sword is um that it's just a physically pretty book. Uh the hardcover is. It's got those great end papers. Um, can we talk about the the origin of of the final look of that book a little bit, or since we have Tony here? Well, I, I think we 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 just wanted to uh, do justice to the epic uh, fantasy nature of it. Um, we we didn't want it. Um, we wanted to make it clear what kind of book it was. So yeah, we have the full color map and papers. We've got the beautiful Larry Elmore frontispiece art, um, and uh, we, we we've got the big book uh, look for the front cover. Um, and uh, but we have also the beautiful full color il il illustration um, for the frontispiece, and it just sort of all came together. Um, uh, to, to, to give you that effect that you, you know, you're, you're holding a pretty artifact in your hand. It is by far the prettiest book I've got. It is, it just came out really nice. Um, Larry Elmore is just, I love Larry. He's amazing. And then Isaac Stewart's map, uh, the Isaac Stewart map in the, in the fold out. So it's two pages. It's beautiful. You know, I, it's, he just did a fantastic job on that. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. And it just, I mean, it really, uh, hits you when you open it up it's a it's it whoever came up with the idea of making it into end papers i don't know <laughs> i think it was probably uh tony who said we're gonna have a draft that's going to be the end papers of the <laughs> yeah well i mean this comes from being you know the, the the target consumer for the stuff that we publish is is you know me at 14 um and uh, <laughs> uh and, and i liked having the maps I, I like being able to follow the quest and and uh and, and to see where the action is happening um but but it also helps transport you into a different world. Um, you know, I I think that illustration is so important in science fiction and fantasy, and 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 having the pretty maps um, is is part of that. Totally agree. Yeah. I'm looking at it. because you guys sent me a uh, sent me a print of it, and so I actually framed it and stuck it on my wall. So as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at a giant map. <laughs> and right next to it, I have a, a, a autographed print from Larry Elmore of the cover piece. Yes, um, I made him a big poster size. Ah, okay. Yeah, we we have we have smaller um, outtakes, basically, or overprints of of the end papers um, that we also have available here as prizes for various contests that we're running. So cool. Yeah. 
Well, is there anything else? And I have my Kurt Miller, and I have a Kurt Miller cover, and I have a Vincent Chong cover. <laughs> you have um, who's a uh, who's the main artist on Monster Hunter? That's um, Alan Pollock. Alan Pollock. We yeah. did a great interview with him, who's and he's talking about doing the Monster Hunter cover art. Yeah. Oh, I love Alan's. I love Alan's artwork. He he just does these just just boisterous, action-packed, yeah. big. You know, explodey covers for Monster Hunter. And I love it's them. got the lines. Right. It says something is happening here. Yeah, yeah. You're just like, holy crap! This is awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's you, there's you, obviously you... monsters and guns. <laughs> and, and his monsters look really scary too. I mean, they're not. They look like something that you would run away from because you know. Oh, I, I love Alpha. <laughs> my, my favorite of his is the cover of Monster Hunter Alpha. Yeah, that's beautiful. He's got the werewolf. Oh yeah. That's... Got the woman turning into a werewolf, and then above him, he's got the big giant uh, diggers, you know, the creepy creature. Oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah, he just made that look so cool. Yeah, that's my favorite cover. It is. Have you seen the uh, Have you seen the cover for Grunge yet, Larry? Oh, I know. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that was out yet. Yeah, we just got it. I'll I'll, I'll pop it over to you when I uh, when I get to my computer. Yeah. Is it Alan? Did you use Alan again? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We 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 did. We we, we wanted to make the series continuity pretty clear. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited to see it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> cool. You will enjoy it. Son of the Black Sword. It's really fun. It's great. If you like epic fantasy, it's the. <laughs> I mean, that's your book. I, I I've been enjoying the reviews on it. Are really good so far. Uh, I was I was reading the reviews the other day and. Uh, I think this is probably on Amazon the highest rated or highest reviewed book I've had so far. Oh wow! But it's been kind of fun because a lot of people know me as like you know the monster gun explosion action adventure guy, and so they they tend to think that that's all I can do. You know, um, no, I mean that's just one of. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love that. I love doing that. And, but it's just kind of funny to see these people like, holy crap, he can actually write other stuff. He's like, yes. <laughs> Well, he can, and the book is Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of The Forgotten Warrior, and it's now at booksellers everywhere. So, Larry, thank you very much, and Tony, for being with us. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Tony. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 18 Toy, this is Cooper. Cooper, Tina's toy, over, Sophia said. Sophia sometimes thought about complaining that she was on the helm about 14 hours a day. She, like, never got a break. The problem being... She knew she loved being at the helm. They'd picked up two other boats and six more survivors. Isham, 
Christensen, and four others who volunteered to leave had been put on one of the yachts and told they could go anywhere they wanted. Don't let the door hit you in the ass and don't get in our way. Chris was now running the Daniel Cooper, a 75-foot flush deck trawler. It wasn't as cool looking as the toy, but Sophia had to admit it had more room and it had taken less of a beating from zombies. Uh, Captain Chris wants you to come over here. Where is here and why over? Sophia asked. There's a big boat here. He says it's a she-wolf job. Give me your location, over, Sophia said, trying not to snort. She was actually at fault for the nicknames. She'd been talking to Paula at the helm, as usual, and telling some stories from Dad's old days. His old para-nickname of Wolfsbane had come up. That got changed to Captain Wolf. Then people started calling her, Sophia, Sea Wolf. So now it was Papa Wolf or Captain Wolf, Mama Wolf, Sea Wolf, and She Wolf. She took down the coordinates, then another voice crackled over the speaker. Sea Wolf, Cooper, over, Chris said. Roger Cooper, Sophia replied. Need to talk to your da, over. Da, Sophia said, keying the intercom. Cookies on the horn, says there's a boat that's a she-wolf job. I hate you, Faith yelled from the saloon. She was engaged in cleaning some of the guns. It's not my fault you're adopted, Sophia sang out. I'm not adopted, Faith said. She's not adopted, Steve said, walking onto the bridge. Cooper? Toy, actual, over. Got a big job here, toy. 40, 50 meter tug. Zombies, plural, on deck. Lots of corridors. Not our cuppa. Steve had supplied Chris with some weapons to clear open boats, but not something like that. Besides, he'd expressed an unwillingness to do serious clearance. I was a chef, not SBS. Roger, Steve said, thinking about it. We're about to clear Purb. We'll vector after that. Roger. We're on to other clearance then? Roger. Continue clearance. We'll handle the big job. Better you than I. Cooper, out. She-wolf job, Faith said. Big job? You are about to get your wish, I think, Steve said. Big ocean-going tug. 150 feet or so. Zombies on deck. Which means Zombie City, Faith said excitedly. Booyah! You're too weird not to be adopted. The EPIRB had been another bust. The tug was another matter. Assuming it didn't run its engines out and its diesel, that's a boomer of fuel for the taking, Steve said. The tug was enormous. Next to it, the toy looked like, well, a toy. And as reported, there were zombies on deck. I can get an AK and try and shoot them off, Faith said. You mean I can try to shoot them off, Steve said. They were certainly lining up for it. I'm a better hand with a rifle. Bet I get more than you, Faith said. Bet you dishes. The problem is bounces, Steve said, considering the angles. We're going to hit low some of the time. We don't want them bouncing back. That would be unwelcome. I was thinking from the flying bridge, Faith said. But if we fire from down here, they're going to bounce up, right? There's a bit of a lip, Steve said, 
pointing to the metal bulwark. Either way, we're going to have some come back and down. 762 tends to keep going, you know. Like going through your mother, going through the hole. Frangibles? Faith said. We're a bit short on those, Steve said. Full up body armor, ballistic glasses, shotgun, and hope like hell we don't kill anyone but zombies or sink the boat. Shotgun spreads, da, Faith pointed out. It also is relatively low velocity, Steve replied. When, not if, it bounces, it hopefully will not go all the way through the hull. The family will rig up, everyone else, below decks. Think you put enough holes in the boat, honey? Stacy asked nicely. There was a large one, right in one of the saloon windows. I'm just glad nothing worse happened, Steve said. He was finishing rigging for the entry. This time, an assault pack made sense, but they'd put life vests on outside everything. They were going to have to climb a boarding ladder to get up to the tug's deck. That was going to be a new experience. We're going to have to figure out a better way to clear zombies off the deck. Like water cannon, maybe, Sophia called. She'd taken off her helmet, but was still in armor, and she hadn't liked it when a bouncer had come through the cabin. As I said, Steve said, we'll have to find something better. I'll go get the fiberglass patches, Stacy said. I still got more than you did, Faith said. You're on dishes tonight. Why need to use the dinghy for this, Steve said, grimacing. I don't want to put the boat alongside until we can get some of those big balloon things from the tug. Going up there from the dinghy is going to be tough, Faith said, which is why we're going to do it very carefully, Steve said, and wear life vests. Pirates make this look so easy, Faith said, throwing the grapnel again. Damn it. Don't hold the dinghy, Steve said, as he pulled the rope back in. Son of a b- blug blug. Faith spit out a mouthful of water and flailed at the surface. This vest isn't blug. Given the weight of her gear, the vest was barely keeping her at the surface. Grab the rope, Faith, Steve yelled. He was up on deck already and dangling a recovery line to her. Fortunately, the vessel wasn't moving much in the light swells. Ow, Faith said as the hull hit her helmet and pushed her under. She managed to get a hand on the recovery line, though, and Steve pulled her back out from under the tug. Tell me there aren't any sharks, Faith said, flailing with one free hand for the boarding ladder. Steve looked around and considered his answer carefully. The recent terminated infected had, after all, bled out. The scuppers were, in the old term, running with blood, and yes, there were a few shadows and fins. You might want to hurry. We need a better way to get onto boats, Faith said. She was sprawled out on the deck of the tug. You realize you're lying in infected zombie blood, right? Steve said. I so don't care, Faith said. We're going to wash down when we reboard anyway. Christ, that sucked. I was getting ready to dump my gear. If we didn't need it, and I could figure out a way to do it without taking off the vest, I would have. But all I could think was, if I took off my vest, I was doing the deep dive with 60 pounds of gear to take off on the way down. We're going to have to figure out better protocols, Steve said. That's for sure. But we're still going to have to use the ladder. 
I hate those, Faith said. I really do. Zombie, zombie, zombies, Faith yelled, pounding on the exterior hatch with a crowbar. Come to Papa Wolf. Zombies? Zombies? And we've got customers, da. Roger, Steve said, taking a freehand stance back from the hatch. Make sure to cover yourself with the hatch. Try not to nail me with bouncers, Faith said, undogging the hatch. She pulled it all the way open and hid behind it. Four zombies stumbled out into the light, blinking. Here, Steve called, taking the first one out. Here, here, here. The zombies, half blinded by the light, stumbled towards the shouts and were dropped in a line. All clear? Faith asked, sticking her head around the hatch. Step away and we'll see, Steve said. She moved back into his position and considered the darkened interior. We're really going to have problems with adjustment, she pointed out. I read an article where the reason that pirates wore eye patches was to keep one eye available for moving into darkness, Steve said. Go into a hold and switch it to the other eye. I guess maybe we should have flip-up sunglasses or something, Faith said. Maybe, Steve said. Zombies? Hello? Zombies? Anybody home? Zombies, 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 Faith yelled, banging on the deck with her crowbar. Ah, that's got one, Steve said, as another zombie stumbled out into the light. Wait, Faith said, dropping the crowbar and drawing her pistol. We've still got more forty-five than twelve-gauge. Point, Steve said as she fired. I was afraid you were going to use a crowbar. Been there, Faith said. Prefer shooting them. Let's dog it again and check the bridge, Steve said. Then we'll clear down from that. Okay, Faith said, shrugging. Any particular reason? More light up there? There was a zombie on the bridge, a well-fed one, which was explained by the two corpses also on the bridge. So, Faith said, tilting her head. One was wearing clothes, the other looks like he wasn't. Zombies eat each other, Steve said. Interesting factoid. Whoops, Faith said, as a zombie came up the companionway. She fired and it tumbled back down, but there were sounds of more stumbling in the darkness below. Think we've got a nest here, duh. If we have to, retreat through the door, Steve said, stepping next to her. Another headed up the companionway and he terminated it. The following zombie stumbled over that one and then started crawling up the stairs. Faith let her saiga fall on its sling and drew her forty-five. One shot to the head terminated that one. I think I've got this, Faith said. I don't think they were all crew, Steve said, letting her take the shots. He had the saiga up and pointed if any got past her. This is too many for crew. And there are women, Faith said, as she took one down. There are women in Merchant Marine, Steve said. But, yeah, I think they took on refugees. Or family, Faith said, pausing. Duh? Got it, Steve said, dropping his saiga to the sling and killing the child zombie with one round of forty-five. I hate shooting the kids, Faith said. She didn't have any trouble with the grown male following. Here's a puzzle, Steve said thoughtfully. Zombie up here? is dead and eaten. I'd see them killing the weakest first. Why did the child survive? 
You're asking me? Faith said. That sounds like a Sophia question. I think it's clear. We certainly made enough noise, Steve said. They'd given up on earplugs, and his ears were ringing. We're gonna go deaf with all this fire. I'll take deafness in old age over being eaten by zombies, Faith said, shrugging. Why are my ears ringing in rhythm? Because that's metal pinging on metal, Steve said. I think we got a survivor. Another salvage operation ruined, Faith said. Ah, Jesus, the man said, turning away from the tact lights and holding up his arm. Sorry, Steve said, turning the light away. The locker the survivor had been hiding in had no portholes, and the lights must have been like a nuke going off. The survivor was skinny as a rail, with long, shaggy hair, and a beard that must have started out long and gotten longer. He was also wearing only a pair of shorts. If he hadn't responded verbally to their bangs, Steve would have thought he was a zombie. I'm not going to be able to see for a day, the man said. Sorry, let me start again. Thank you. You're welcome, Steve said. He pulled a chem light out of a pouch and dropped it on the floor in the compartment. Here's some water, he said, taking the bottle from Faith and getting it into the man's hands. We're going to keep clearing and come back when we're sure we can extract you safely. Just hang in there. Not a problem, the man said, taking a swig of water with his eyes still closed. God, that's good. God almighty, that is so good. Just hang in there, Steve repeated. We'll be back. This place is a maze, Faith said, swinging her tack light around. Do you know where we left that guy? I think we're going to have to find the bridge again and follow the trailer bodies, Steve said, opening a hatch. He held his hand up to the descending sun and grimaced. Okay, based on the bodies, this is where we first were. Then the bridge ladder should be up and to the left, port, right? Starboard, Steve said. See why that's important on a boat? Let's just see if we can find that guy again. Some of the guys brought their families, the survivor said, pulling the blanket up as he sipped tomato soup. He still was wearing the sunglasses Faith had found for him. We figured if we stayed at sea, we could avoid it. Somebody, maybe a couple, were infected. The survivor's name was Michael Purple Fly Bredo, deckhand and assistant engineer on the ocean-going tug Victoria's Boss. Anybody else? He asked, pushing up the sunglasses and grimacing. Oh, I didn't hear any more banging, Steve said. But that doesn't mean it's clear. It was sort of a maze. Not if you know it, Bredo said. I could... Christ, I don't want to go back on, but I could help you find your way around. Tomorrow, Steve said, and we're going to need to figure out some better protocols for boarding and clearing. Okay, why didn't we do this the first time? Faith asked. She had a line clipped to her gear, which was being belayed by Steve from the deck. She'd held a line from the dinghy as he'd climbed the ladder. Because I didn't think about it, Steve admitted as she cleared the railing. Makes a lot of sense in retrospect. So does marking everything, Faith said, pulling out a can of spray paint. We're going to need more of this. Okay, she continued, 
unclipping and throwing the line over the side. Your turn, fly. Zombie, zombie, zombies, Faith said, banging on the hatch with the butt of the knife. Sounds clear, da? Open, Steve said, taking a two-handed stance with his forty-five, covering the opening hatch. He'd picked up a headlamp and had two more lights duct-taped to his gear pointing forward. Stuck, Faith said. The dog had released, but the hatch wouldn't open. Crowbar, Steve said. Carefully. There is no careful with a crowbar, da, Faith said, pulling it out. Wait, Bredo said. There's something better. I need, like, a sheath for this, Faith said, hefting the Halligan tool. This is, like, totally made for zombie fighting. She jammed the ads portion into the seal of the door and pushed on the bar. The hatch gaped slightly. There's a rope holding it closed, Steve said, shining a tack light into the interior. No zombies, not alive anyway. Can you get the rope? Faith grunted. Hang on, let me... The tool slipped, fortunately missing Steve. I need this in farther. Hammer, Mike said. And you might want me to do it next time. No way, Faith said, hefting the halligan. I love this thing. I want to have its babies. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Hans Daniel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an iceberg slab autographed by Captain Cook and his Polynesian navigator Tupaya, along with a vampire moth collection and the sword of the sixth son of the seventh daughter, plus gratitude and plaudits to Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf and Larry Correa, author of Son of the Black Sword. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.